Welcome to the Valley Beit Midrash podcast, a program of Valley Beit Midrash, a global center of learning and action. We're bringing you the best in diverse, pluralistic Jewish wisdom, all with the goal of improving lives in our global community. I'm Rabbi Shmuley Yanklowitz. Let's get started. Hi, friends. Thanks so much for being here today. Welcome to When Was the Last Time You Invited God to a Social Get-Together? It is an important question for us to think about. And um, we're happy to be here again with Dr. Johnny Schnitzer. If, if you're a regular at VBM, then you've heard from him many times before. And um, it's great to have him back. Um, normally, we read his whole bio. And if you've been here in the past, you've heard that. I'll post it in the chat. But what I'll just say as a one-liner for today is um, Dr. Johnny Schnitzer's PhD in Jewish philosophy focuses on medieval Kabbalah. If you, um, you can enjoy many of his past presentations with us, his past learning sessions with us in our learning library, just go to his name and you'll get a whole bunch of videos and podcasts. And um, he is calling from Israel today. Of course, um, I'm sure there's a whole range of views in the room today around the judicial reforms that passed today. Um, and we're gonna bracket um, those politics for now and look at when was the last time you invited God to a social get together? So Dr. Schnitzer, thanks for being here. Thank you, thank you very much, Rabbi Shmuley. Um, so good good, uh, good afternoon, good evening, everyone. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna start with, with the obvious question and it's sort of the question is, is, is what led to this, to, this to this class. And that is, you know, let's all honestly ask ourselves, this isn't a hypothetical, when was the last time we went out to the neighborhood bar. We went to a to a football match. Doesn't matter where we went. We went out and meet met, meet friends. And did we think in our mind, oh wait, I forgot to invite Hashem? Or when we got to that encounter, are we even in that mindset of of, of where where God is? Now I don't know about you. I you know I, I I haven't done that too often. You know I usually go. You meet mates. You meet friends. You you go out on a date with your wife or your partner and. You know, you you do what you do, but but we somehow seem to associate. I might be wrong. There might be someone here that thinks otherwise. All of you, perhaps, but but we seem to associate encounters with God two very contradictory, almost you know, completely contrasting encounters, types of encounters. And the truth is, I think it's the Bible's fault, so to speak. And what do I mean? So we read the Bible. And, you know, that that's where we get to learn God. It's the sort of first biography of God, if you like. It's the biography of the Jewish people. It's the biography of, of Israel. And, and, and what do we see there? There are usually two encounters, two characteristic encounters in which God's presence appears. And the first one, a brother murders his brother. Was it called for? Was it called uncalled for? Was it just? Was it unjust? It doesn't matter. But when that happens... That, that that this sheer moment of tragedy, this this lack of human connection, but but then Ayeka, where art thou? Where are you? God's presence appears in moments like that, or when there is a leader, in, in every bone, every inch of his body, he is a leader. But 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 they they, they don't want their calling. They they're too shy. They don't. And then God appears in the burning bush, and says yes. You have a duty to, 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 to do, to, you were born to lead them despite your fears. These, this is one type of biblical encounter of God and what we've gotten used to. 
And it's, 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 it's so embedded in us that, that when do we usually feel or try, when do we attempt to encounter God's presence? In moments of sheer intimacy, in moments of prayer. Right? We're, we're, even if, even if we're, we're in shul, we're in synagogue, we're all together, but, but it's, it's sort of to each their own. We sort of get into our, you know, we close our eyes or not, and we're in this mode, and it's within us, perhaps. You know, one could even argue that these biblical encounters are not even God's presence, God coming to, but it's a, it's a calling from within. And, and so that's one, it's the sort of sheer intimacy in which God has gotten us used to understanding that when does God appear? In moments of sheer intimacy. Something is either drastically gone wrong, or we need that little nudge, that little push in that, that sort of utmost moment of intimacy, and then God appears. And then, and then things change. And then history happens. And, and then there's the, the sort of 180 degrees could not be more different, Mount Sinai. Talk about a flamboyant entrance. It couldn't be more 180 degrees than Ayeka. All of a sudden, this, this climatic moment, it's so powerful, so circus-like, that what are we told the Israelites? We see, right, him, Raukolot. We see voices. We see sounds. There's this, this, magnificent, this, this multicolored show that completely blurs our senses. So either God appears to us, there's this powerful encounter in this sort of magnitude, we're all together, everyone, all the Israelites, all the souls. You know, just a while ago, a few days ago, I was reading some, some Hasidic text that taught us, do you know why you need to treat animals, dogs, cats? You know why you need to be kind to animals? Because even their souls were there at Mount Sinai, right? So there's this beautiful idea that everyone was in this encounter where God appeared and God presence was, right? God was present, or it's these sheer moments of utmost intimacy. And we don't seem, we have this gap that we way too often mind, which, which is somewhere in between. What happens when we meet with friends? What happens in our day-to-day -day lives? What happens in the office? What happens at home? So to speak, because we'll close the circle, but so to speak, we, we don't really find God's presence there. And what I'd like to do is I'd like to address this issue in order to create a paradigm shift. I want us to try and change the way we view social interactions by addressing three kinds of interactions. I want to talk about genuine friendship, and we're going to look at fascinating texts. We are going to look at, you know what, we're going to look at the only time, to my mind, in, in Jewish history, on the Jewish bookshelf, where these questions beg themselves. And it's, it's, it's Hasidicism 2.0. It's, it's the final, the final kind of calling of Hasidicism just before the Holocaust. It's just after, and we're going to see this, just after the Baal Shem Tov's first revolution, the idea that God is everywhere, the idea that everyone's important, you know, this, this beautiful, this, this idea of, 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 of social awakening. The peak of this is texts we are going to touch upon, which are not, 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 too, not too well known because this question isn't, isn't talked about enough, I think, and it should be talked about, it should be addressed more. And that is about God's presence in social interactions. It's closing the Baal Shem Tov circle. If the Baal Shem Tov first came and said, it's not just about the elite, everyone's important. Everyone must find God's presence. Then the peak of this movement is, and 
it, it, it's, in, it's in a relatively dark time for, for the Jewish world. You know, if you if you read Agnon, Shai Agnon, he writes the wedding canopy, Achnasat Kala, which is a send-up of Hasidicism and, you know, Eastern Galicia at its peak. It's this humorous novel, your classic story, a Nebuch Hasid, three daughters, he has to marry out and he has no money. And, and, and but, but, but Agnon, you know, Nobel laureate uh, literature, he paints us this beautiful picture of what Hasidicism is about. And it's at its peak, we're talking mid-19th century. So this is almost 100 years after the Baal Shem Tov's passed away. But then Agnon writes another novel, which, if I, if I remember correctly, is what gets him the Nobel Prize. And that's um, A Guest for the Night. Orech Natal Alun. And A Guest for the Night, some might say, is a, prophetic, is a prophecy of the Holocaust before the Holocaust has even occurred. A guest for the night could not be further away from the peak of Hasidicism in the wedding, wedding canopy. A guest for the night is about the darkness that is about to come because th there is no unity, because social interactions look like what they look like, and it, it, it's grim, and it's, they, they, there are a lot of arguments, and there are Hasidim, and there are Misnagdim, and there are Maskilim, and there's everything of everything. And it's at this point, within this context, where the Jewish world could not be more split. Oh, you know, it's pretty split. Unlike today, today we're pretty unified. Today we're very, very unified. Very, very, a lot of split, a lot of tension. It is in this context that we have this awakening amongst Hasidic rabbis, just before the Holocaust and some of them just after, who address this issue. Wake up. We need to start understanding that God is calling us and God's presence requires to fill the gap between these sheer moments of intimacy of prayer and the grand magnitude, the flamboyance of Mount of Harsinai. And in order to do that, I want us, so we're going to address social get-togethers on three levels. We're going to look at texts look at what does what does genuine friendship look like and how is that even connected to God's presence once we understand genuine friendship and we're going to sort of as I said we're going to create a paradigm shift over what genuine friendship what is it meant to look like and how is God's presence connected to genuine friendship and then we're going to look at social get-togethers try and understand you know a broader level when friends many different friends some friends people you just know when you come together for a specific party or whatnot, we're going to ask what happens at those moments, what's meant to happen in those moments, how are we meant to create this paradigm shift of the next time we go to such a social get-together. And the third level is day-to-day -day mundane interactions. You go to the supermarket, you buy something, you, you stumble upon someone in the street. What is that meant to look like? Those are the three levels we're going to address where we're going to constantly ask ourselves about where is God in these social get-togethers? And in order to do that, I, I want to touch upon Hasidut to sort of remind us very briefly, very, very briefly, what Hasidut lo looks like at the very beginning. Keep this in the back of our minds and then where we're headed. And, and you know, sort of what, what, what we can learn from this. Okay. So 
The first thing that I think is important to note, you know what, let's start with a little story. Short story. Uh, so the Baal Shem Tov, one day, he takes his uh, ride, it's Havdalah time, we've, we've finished Shalashidis, and it's it's end of Shabbat, and he, he gets his shamash, he gets his helper and says, quip, get me the DeLorean, get me the magical, you know, wagon that's going to fly through time, we're going to go on a, on a trip somewhere, because we have to go, I, I, I've gotten a calling. And he takes them into the forest, the story is known as the Nigun, it has many different titles, and they go in the forest. And this is the new way of learning Torah. And the Baal Shem Tov takes his, his, his disciples until he hears a sound. They all hear a sound, a beautiful sound of, a, of someone playing a flute. And the Baal Shem Tov walks towards the, the sound of the flute. And it's this boy, it's a shepherd, a non-Jewish shepherd, and he's playing his flute. And all of a sudden, the disciples see how the Baal Shem Tov is, is, is you know, he's getting into, you know, this moment of ecstasy. And he's, he's sort of, he's slowly dancing and a tear drops. And all of a sudden, the, the shepherd notices the Baal Shem Tov as in disciples, and he stops playing. And the Baal Shem Tov looks at him and says, well, why did you stop? He says, you know what? If I pay you a kopik, I'd give you a, a few bucks, even less than that. Will you, will you play the tune again? The boy thinks he's making a month's salary. Sure, why not? Deal of his life. He takes the kopik, and he plays the tune again. And this time, the Baal Shem Tov starts jumping up and down, and the disciples are looking. They're, they're, they're a little bit confused, but now they're also trying to slowly ease into it. And just as they're about to ease into it, the shepherd stops, right? It's enough. You can already smell more is coming. And the Baal Shem Tov says, another Kopek. Will you continue? Made my year. The boy takes the Kopek. The boy plays his, his, his flute. The Baal Shem Tov is in ecstasy. Now the disciples in their ecstasy. And they're, and they're circling around him. And again, at this sort of this peak, the boy stops. Baal Shem Tov says, could you do it again, please? This is just such beautiful music. Could you do it for a little bit longer? The boy, you know, hints. He gives him another kopek. He does it again. They're all now singing and dancing and jumping and listening to this beautiful tune. And of course, then the boy plays a little bit longer, but then he stops. And then the Baal Shem Tov says, could you perhaps do it one more time? Same deal, Kopik. And the boy says, sure. The boy's about to reach for the Kopik. And then he says, I don't remember the tune. I don't remember the tune. Baal Shem Tov smiles. He says, thank you very much. Everyone back in the DeLorean, back in the magical wagon, and they head back to Mezhibuz. Back at home, right? Disciples ask the Baal Shem Tov, Baal Shem Tov, what's going on? Well, what are we meant to learn here? And the Baal Shem Tov says to them, I'll tell you a story. When God, right, we're about to reach the, 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 the ninth of Av this week, the destruction of the temple. And the Baal Shem Tov says, when God destroyed the temple, we all know that he banished the Jews, exiled us all over the, all over the globe. What you don't know is that that's not all that God put into exile. God exiled each and every thing connected to our very being. And that means that he exiled the Jewish people. He exiled the instruments from the Holy Temple. He even exiled the tunes that the Leviites would play in the Holy Temple. And when I was in the forest and I heard that boy playing, I, I recognized that he was playing an exiled tune played by the Levites. So do you know why I paid him those three kopecks? Because I had to ransom the tune so it could go back to God. 
And once it was ransomed, he did not know the tune anymore because it no longer belonged in his possession. It went back to God. It did shuva, returned. And I think this story encapsulates, if I had to choose a motto, a logo for the Hasidic movement, I have no doubt in my mind it would be let atar panui mine. It's a saying from Tikkunei Azar, right, 14th century uh, or perhaps older, Zoharic statement, let atar panui mine, nowhere is empty of him. This is the Hasidic, this is the Kabbalistic project. The Kabbalistic project is understanding that God is everywhere. And then if this is the Kabbalistic medieval project, what is a Hasid? A Hasid is a social Kabbalist. That's a Hasid. A Hasid says, what is it worth, these statements and these studies, if I can't, if it doesn't have social ramifications, if I can't bring it down to earth? This explains the Baal Shem Tov's revolution. Once our logo is nowhere as empty of him, what is the grand social ramification of this? That each and every one of us is important. Everything on earth is important. This bottle has to be redeemed. Recycling is important because everything has to go back to where it goes. Each and every one of us. It's the it, it, it's, it's completely disrupting social hierarchies because everyone is equal in God's eyes. Everyone was a, is a creation of God. And, and, and this is this is a Hasid, a, so, a social Kabbalist. Now, I want us to understand, because this is, again, this is Hasidicism 1.0. This is the first revolution of the Baal Shem Tov. It's important to understand this in order to understand where we're headed. Because the, the, the texts we're about to learn are texts that are not often enough studied because they appear at the sort of dwindling of, of, of Hasidicism. And something happens in the Holocaust. And they're not discussed enough today, especially in days like today, especially in weeks like today, than the, the, the nine days uh, towards the destruction of the temple. Now, now get this. This is beautiful. This is, I'm going to do this very quickly because this isn't the text we want to study. So the Baal Shem Tov's grandson, the uh, 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 Rabbi Ephraim of, of Sudikov, so he teaches, uh, he tells us, he shares with us, he reveals the teaching of the Baal Shem Tov. Now, what was the logo of the Kabbalists? Nowhere is empty of him. Now get this. This is Hasidicism. So he teaches us. He's teaching us now Psalms of King David. There I searched for you in the very attributes and places which were far from you. There I searched for you until I found and showed the presence of your glory to be there as well. God's everywhere. And nowhere is empty of you. Do you see what he did? This is so powerful. Let panui mine, meaning even for the medieval Kabbalist, it's still only him. The Baal Shem Tov turns it into a dialogue saying you. This, this, this is Hasidicism in a nutshell. This is Hasidicism 1.0. This is everyone matters. God is everywhere. But then something happens. Something happens and, and it's great and it's amazing. We all know that we're all important and this is wonderful. But, 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 but there's Hasidicism 2.0. And these are the three levels we're about to get into now. This is this, this new understanding of of wondering or trying to answer now why we don't ask ourselves where is god when was god when was the last time we invited god into a social get-together these texts i believe have the power to change that in our concept of what happens in a social get-together 
So let's start with the first level or perhaps, you know, the most, and, and I'm leaving out notice. It's quite obvious, perhaps, I think to, to most of you, I've left out the most important union between husband and wife, because there we are told quite explicitly. So when there is no peace, when there is no shalom bite between husband and wife, God does not dwell. His presence is not in that place. So that we already know. But now what about presence in, in, in other interactions? So let's start with what genuine friendship is meant to look like. And for this, we're going to look at a real hero, the Piasetzner Rav. The Piasetzner Rav, Rabbi Kalman Klonimu Shapira, this grand leader from Piasetzno. Uh, his brother, before the Holocaust, moves to Israel. He buys land in Israel. He says to his brother, come, the land of Israel is waiting for you. And the Piasetzner Rav, sensing the Nazis are coming, says, I cannot leave my people. And, and, and you know, he, in the end, he's murdered in, 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 in the Warsaw Ghetto. He then buried He's a story in himself, but but we're going to read now two very powerful texts of the Piasetzner Rebbe because he is part of the revolution of Hasidicism 2.0 and perhaps completing the gap of the Baal Shem Tov and this idea of if everyone's important and everyone can find God within them, it is now of the utmost importance to find God when we interact with one another because then our interactions will change. Unity will look different. It'll be real. Be very, very careful when it comes to loving friends. So. This is, we're reading a text that the Piasetzna Rav wrote. It's called Chovata Talmidim. It is, it is what is expected of students, right? You're, you're young, you're a teenager, and you're going into the Piasetzna Rav's uh, base midrash. You're going to start learning. First, we need to understand what, what, what friendship looks like. This, this is super important. Be very, very careful when it comes to loving friends. A pupil who comes from a wealthy background should not boast about his wealth, and a pupil of poor background shouldn't humiliate himself for being poor, for you are all God's children, his pure angels upon the earth, and in the manner in which you connect to one another lovingly, and your souls stick together to become one, in this manner, so too God will connect with you. And on the contrary, this is super scary, on the contrary, the consequence of any blemish or distance between you drives you further away from God, God forbid. Have you ever read such a text? He, he's actually saying that, you know, if you had that phone call with your friend and you, you got frustrated, you got annoyed, and, and suddenly there's a rift in the friendship. The Piasetzna Rav is saying it's not, only that, it's not only that you and your friend have drifted. If you've blocked them on Facebook, you've blocked God. You think you can pray in the morning having blocked someone? I'm not talking about legitimate block, but you, know, you, you, you suddenly, you don't understand the ramifications of what happens when you fight with a friend. And, and, and on the contrary, you want closeness to God? Praying is important. Studying Torah is important. Be a good friend. Piyasetz Narav is saying this. It's so beautiful. Be a good friend is a prerequisite for God's presence. Because when you are a good friend, when, when that friend needs you and you're wondering, do I go and help them or not? By going and doing that, he's saying, God's you are bringing more Shekhinah to the world. God's presence is there. One zero to the good side against the bad side. This is amazing. And, and notice what else he's doing here. There's something, you know, this, this idea of framing of, of the way we often see each other, ourselves, before, before one another. And he addresses this so sensitively and so beautifully, right? It's we all sometimes, we all come from different backgrounds, right? The Baal Shem Tov's revolution is not yet complete because the Baal Shem Tov's revolution came to say, 
rich and poor, it doesn't matter. Everyone's equal in the Shemais because let a Torah panui mine, because nowhere is empty of you, God. Doesn't matter who or what you are. So we we, we still have these challenges. And what the Piasets Nareba understands here, and he's trying to teach us here, I think, is that sometimes we look at ourselves in the wrong way. And he says, no, 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 no. You're an angel of God. Right? How, how does he say this so beautifully? He says, you're pure angels upon earth. You're neshama. Everyone has a neshama. No one's neshama is tainted. Everyone has a beautiful neshama. Our, our, you know what return is, what tshuva is? The purpose of tshuva isn't to become the best version of ourselves. We were born perfect. It's to become our true selves. And Pia Setsnarav is saying, we'll get with the program. You're perfect. She's perfect. He's perfect. Just, just get along. And when you get along, God's presence is there. And when you're not, God distances himself. So, so this, this already is a bit shocking. This already changes. You know, it's a bit rattling in terms of, uh, you know, of sort of re- trying to recall our, our where we stand right now with different social rela- relationships vis-a-vis God. And this is very important for the Pesetz Narav. And the continuation of this, right? So once we've discussed true friendship, he's now talking about genuine connection between friends as a path to God, right? There's a difference between a prerequisite to, to sort of having God's presence, but then to be able to really feel God in that presence. What, what does that look like? Therefore, friends who connect together, each one guiding their friend lovingly in the way of God, since they do not only speak of day-to-day matters, these are also important, but rather things rising from within their souls. Notice he's not talking here about studying Torah. He's talking about revealing something true about yourself. It's not about showing a Facebook post that says, look how perfect my life is. It's about actually sharing something real from within. That's that's real connection. Things rising from within their souls. It is this way that they unite in loving friendship for each one gives his soul to their friend. And this is the reason why this kind of connection is also called amira, a saying. Like what is said during Kiddushin, right? When a husband and wife get married, you have, it is through truthful sayings, brachot, which stem from the soul that the two individuals can connect. And now he wants to go biblical on us and, 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 and show us an example and then translate it to what this supposed friendship looks like. Job, right? We know that Job, Job, poor bugger, you know, he, he had a worse time than anyone. And at the peak of his, of his hardship, he has three quote-unquote mates that come along to try and make him feel better. Are they really mates? And Job tormented his friends for making claims that were intelligent or that sounded nice, but none of them spoke from within their soul. Right? Each one comes and gives, a, a, you know, what we think, our take about what, what's happening to you, poor Job. But he can hear that this is clearly... It's public diplomacy. It's not real. It's not authentic. It's not raw. It's not from the soul. They're doing this in order for Job to think, oh, what a good mate. They're not doing this from the place of genuinely wanting to to have their soul spill out in order to help heal Job's soul. And what does he say to them? How eloquent is upright talk? But what result have any of you proven? And here the Piyasetsnarav continues, upright talk is good, 
But what have any of you proven? What more he spoke was this. This is the, the Piasetzna Rav's edition. Whom have you spoke from within themselves? Right? We all have these moments. The difference between, you know, talking from within and the social self, the masked self. And he's saying, get rid of the mask. Get rid of the mask. So long as you have the mask on, you're blocking God. If you block yourself from your friend, if you're playing pretend, if you're playing the diplomat, then God's going to play the diplomat as well. And nobody likes diplomat. You know, you, you want a friend. You don't want a diplomat. So our, on our, our, our sort of our first level is, is, is understanding genuine friendship. And the two texts we see here are a drop in the ocean of this Hasidicism 2.0 revolution. And the Piasetzna rabbi is one of our, is one of the prominent figures when we come and talk about this revolution and this, this rude awakening, this understanding, as I mentioned, it's not coming from a vacuum. It's precisely because the Piasetzna rabbi, rabbi is looking around and the Jewish street does not look very good. There are a lot of arguments going on. There's suddenly the rise of Zionists, and there are the anti-Zionists, and there are Hasidim, and there are anti, and there's to every which thing that stems from, you know, from Jewish thought, there is the anti, and there are these rifts all over the place. This is where these texts, I think, are coming from. It's, it's, the, we need to, we need to close the circle of what the Baal Shem Tov was doing and understand that it's not enough to see that God is everywhere, but that we need to be doing God. During friendship, and now we're going to move on. We're now we're sort of slowly elevating. Our story's evolving. Our first, our first station has been understanding uh, sort of a new look into friendship. Let's now look at what social get-togethers look like with Hasidicism 2.0. So, and this, this is uh, this is already a later. This is slightly later. This is Rabbi Menachem Eckstein. Uh, um, again, a Hasidic book. It's sort of it's a later Hasidic book. Again, another interesting thing is that you notice with a lot of the Baal Shem Tov stories, a lot of the emphasis really is to show that everyone's a hero in the story. The boy, the donkey, everything. What is unique about the text we are reading here is that it goes back to the, 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 the social cohesion and saying, let's put nature aside for a moment. It's important to know that God is everywhere, but, but let's, let's now focus on, on us as a society, on us as a group, on us as a strong community. Before we begin talking about festivals, an important matter should be mentioned, right? It's a Hasidic book, and he wants to talk about how one, how each of us, a social Kabbalist, should behave in a, in a festival, right? Rosh Hashanah, Chanukah, Purim. But, but before this, before we begin talking about festivals, an important matter should be mentioned, for it is one of the foundations of Hasidicism. Get this, we're about to learn one of the foundations of Hasidicism. It is known that the Hasidim, that the Hasidim sees a, a gre- very great value in gatherings and get-togethers during the Sabbath and festivals, right? This, this, this is no, we, we know this. Hasidim love to get together. The reason for this is that it takes into great consideration the effect and influence which pass on from one person to their friend. The true fact of the power which passes on from one person to another are rather well known. 
And each person with a feeling soul, a beating heart, encounters such instances almost daily. If we're not sure what he means, he's going to explain. Many times we see how a person who is happy can cheer up a group of people by his mere presence, even if he does not do anything or try and make them happy. It's as if some kind of invisible happiness frequencies emanate from him and penetrate into their hearts, making them feel happy. Right. So he, he's, he says, we know the Hasidim like to get together and he wants to explain why. And he says he's connecting this to, to this beautiful social phenomenon. He says, we all know what it's like. We go to a coffee shop. We all meet as friends. And that friend has walked in and they're having a brilliant day. They've just, they've just got engaged. Something amazing has just happened to them. They've just gotten the, their dream job. It doesn't matter what. They're just happy they woke up and they're breathing. And they don't have to say anything. They don't have to smile. There's something about that energy that's contagious. That, that's, and it also has the flip side. Remember, like with the friendship. So too, a person is, who is sad and bitter can make others feel down by merely coming close to them as if some dark cloud spreads over them and all over their hearts, right? We feel this as well. If someone is, it's very hard when someone is, you know, very depressed, very down, and it's not, it can have an influence, it can have an effect on us. And, and so he says, I want you to first notice this, 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 you know, like let's, this is an equilibrium. We all agree. We, we've all been through these experiences. That person walks in and he, he just changes our mood by simply walking in for better or for worse. And he wants to connect this to why so why this is one of the why a social get together is one of the foundations of Hasidicism. Hasidicism sees great value in this powerful force, these, these sort of invisible frequencies that pass on from one person to another, which stem from everyone. For in matters of religion, this force is much greater than other things in this world. According to Hasidic concepts, Faith is natural, and the soul of every person strives to know its maker. May he be blessed. Therefore, if we connect to a person who has already liberated their soul from all doubts, for he already knows his maker, then he will surely feel this power spread from within him. So he starts off by saying something very interesting. Notice he says that if he has to decide on a sort of Maslow pyramid, prayer, studying Torah, commandments, or this energy, this energy is above all in terms of creating influence in the world. And this is why social get-together is so important. And this is why Hasidim come together during Sabbath and during festivals, because it's this energy, a mass gathering, like, like, you know, even going to a footy match or going to a baseball game, there's something going on there. We're in the ninth inning it's the, the game's tied, right? This, this is, you could take this analogy and talk about a ball game. It doesn't matter who's the next one to, uh, to hit a home run or to get a shutout. It doesn't matter. It's this energy in the stadium. It's this energy in the best midrash. It's this energy on the farm, wherever. He says, this is the most important thing to religion. More than commandments. This is what drives commandments. And then where does he take this? He says, whenever we're together, and why is this so important? Everyone's on a different level. His working assumption is everyone wants to connect to God. Everyone wants to return to God. Everyone wants tshuva. Nature, you know, sort of the world works in such a way that some people and each and every one of us on a given day of the week or month or whenever, 
we're closer, we're further away. So in any given moment, we have someone who's a bit closer. He's already hinting to us that when you, you know, when you choose to meet your friends for a barbecue, don't just meet because you want to have fun in the summer. Meet because you have a social responsibility. If you're feeling high now, then you have a social responsibility to gather your friends together so that you can uplift them, so that you can be the driving force of their return to God. Right? It's, it's this idea of, of, of using its, its social get-togethers as a vehicle, driving religion, driving our connection to God, driving our connection to each other. The more a person is greater spiritually and his soul complete, the forces spreading from him are greater and stronger, especially if those connecting with him try also to liberate their souls from doubts. Now, there's no doubt that he's talking here about the Hasidic Rebbe. But I think he's saying more than that. I really think he is also pointing out here, Eckstein, to, 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 the, to our own understanding of where we are in a given moment and our role in initiating a social get-together in order to help our group, our community, our friends uplift us. They then feel more of the light which comes from greater people. For as the Hasidic books teach us, every soul receives according to its preparation. Therefore, if Hasidim pray together, and among them are many great people who have already elevated their souls to a high level, so too another and the great ones affect the lesser ones, carrying them, assisting them to free their souls from their material bodies. And the bottom line here, I think, is Eckstein is teaching us and this really does encapsulate this, this beautiful idea, this, this second level of God's presence in social get-togethers. It's a gathering. It's a summer party. It's a coming together, trying to be more aware, being more conscious, creating this paradigm shift of, are we doing this for fun? Are we doing this to declare something, to celebrate something? Or are we using this as a vehicle to all together come closer to Hashem, come closer to God, and to be aware and understanding that each and every one of us are always on a different level. When was the last time when we knew there was someone, one of our mates that, that didn't get that job, that had that difficult breakup? Did we come together and think that through doing this, this is what brings God. This is what creates God's presence. And this is what helps uplift all of us together. Act two. Now I want to move to, to sort of to, to conclude as we're driving towards the end. I, I want to move now shift to day-to-day -day encounters. Because you might, you know, we could argue and it's very easy, you know, intuitive to say, okay, friendships, we don't always think like that. And okay, we can understand how through friendships, we, you know, we, we can connect more to God. And through social get-togethers, especially in a Hasidic context, we can see that. Although I must say, if we go back to social get-togethers, I have to share with you, my Yetzer Hara forces me to share this because uh, I mentioned a ballpark. On our honeymoon, Ilana and I, we were, um, I took her, we were in Australia. I took her to the World Cup in cricket. I took her because I wanted her to experience what it's like to see 85,000 people in one stadium. We were 85,000 people in one stadium. Everyone's different. It was, it was India against South Africa. Now, Donnie, Donnie is the captain of India. He reaches 99 points. I all of a sudden, for the first time in my life, heard Right. What does Elijah say? Elijah talks about cold mamadaka, this beautiful silence in which you can hear God's presence. And when Donnie reached 99 points, I heard 85,000 people in sheer silence. And then the moment the South African passes, he throws the ball and Donnie gets his 100. 
180 degrees. I, I told Ilana, I said, I really felt a, a religious experience. I, I haven't felt like this on Yom Kippur. I, I'm, I'm ashamed to say this. You know, so I, there is something about a social, the power of a social get together. And I think Eckstein spun on and he's saying, try and think of a social get together as fuel and in a different way to uplift one another outside of the study hall, outside of, 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 of you know, of, 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 of the synagogue. And this, in this sense, it's Hasidicism 2.0, taking this, this, this idea that God manifests himself, God is everywhere into other social settings and scenes anywhere, any which way. But now we're in our third, our third level, mundane day-to-day interactions. So there's a statement in the Talmud that teaches us, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, and this is also very relevant for today, right? Because once, once we have the, the destruction of the temple, or it's, it's quite obvious that that's what's happening, um, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai revolutionizes Judaism to, to perhaps some might argue what it's become today, studying and praying. And this very same Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, who perhaps created the greatest reform, and when I say greatest, I mean at the very least in terms of longest standing revolution of, you know, 2000 years almost. Not only was he this great reformer, but we are told this very interesting statement. They said of Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai that no one ever greeted him first, uh, even a Gentile in the market, rather he made sure to offer the first greeting. Now, what does that mean? Like, w- w- was it that he just sort of went around and was making sure to say, Shalom, Shalom, Shalom? Well, surely there's more power to that that Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai just wanted to make sure that he's the first one to say hello. I, I, there, there's surely more to it. And for that, we need to move on to, to Alei Shor, to our final book, which is the very latest book. This is already sort of heading into, you know, way into the 20th century. And here we're going to touch upon what happens when two people see each other. And this is so powerful. These two forces are the foundation of humanity's social life. The first one, the yearning of each person to receive Ha'arat Panim. We're going to talk about Ha'arat Panim. Ha'arat Panim literally means sort of the lighting up of a face. Your face lights up, your face is inspired. Something happens to your face, to, to you. So the yearning of each person to receive Harat Panim from one another. And the second, so, so the first one is that we want to we get this, right? I want Ethan to come to me and give me Harat Panim. I want Ethan to notice me. I want Ethan to come and say, not just hello, but Johnny, I see you. I really see you. And, and there's something to say beyond the very polite Western, how's it going? There's, it, and that gives me Harat by, by him. Give it, I want that Harat Panim. That's the first driving force of all of human social life. And the second one, and this is the good news, we all want, we have this yearning, the power to give Harat Panim, which is planted within the heart of each person. So the Baalalei Shor is telling us not only does Johnny have a yearning for Ethan to give him Harat Panim, but Ethan has an inner yearning to give Harat Panim. This, this is beautiful. We all need it. We all want to give it. So where's the problem? Why do we fight? And here he gets to what, what, why things happen. And if we observe some human interactions, we see at times how two people cannot find a way to connect. How this leads to bitterness and anger due to mutual misunderstanding. If we try to find the root of this, 
We always find that one person is waiting for the other to start coming closer. People can wait like this until the point of despair. He's like, if, if, if Johnny wants Arat Panim, and Ethan wants to give Arat Panim, and now let's say something happened because they're human. So there was a dispute. One person said a thing they didn't really mean. It was misinterpreted. And now they split. This, 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 they can stay like this, Johnny and Ethan, almost until eternity because each one's waiting for Harat Panim. Each one wants it. And the ego makes it so difficult to, 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 to so difficult to, to, to let in. So to let God, God's presence in. And so if we go back to Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai, I, I think this is what he was doing. When we're told that he greeted, right, this, this great reformer, that there was not a single person, human being, Rabban Yochanan ben Zakkai was not interested. Are we talking Jew? Not, it doesn't interest him. Any human, he wants to give them harat panim. He wants to light up their face. He wants them to beam of themselves, of their neshama. He, he wants them to, and Ali Shor is saying, you know, this is something to work on. Once we have awareness and understand that many of our fights, you know, you can sometimes, we, we all have this, you have this sort of mundane, you know, silly fight, and it takes time to then realize, okay, this is just a silly thing. And who's, who's the one that's going to come and then give Harat Panim? Both want to give it. If you remember that both want to give it and both want to receive it, be the one to give. Everything will be better that way. He's, he, he's approaching each and every one of us. That's, that, that's the good news. Now, I want to conclude this because we're sort of, you know, sort of closing the circle with a biblical example because I, I misled us at the start. Right at the beginning, I said that, that it's sort of supposedly the Bible's fault that we, you know, we get used to that, that we either, you know, open our prayer books to pray to God, sheer moments of inter intimacy, or we think of Mount Sinai as the sort of, you know, grand flamboyant entrance of God. And we don't often enough think about when we have a barbecue, when we go to a ball game, when we go to the study hall, thinking of God's presence there and what's going on. You know, we study Torah, we do it out of thinking that God wants us to study Torah. Are we thinking that by doing this, we are trying to, 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 to enshrine God's presence. And I, you know, I think there is, there is at least one biblical scene. And when I say at least one, there are many. I think when we view the Bible through this prism, we are able to find many, many instances in which God is precisely present in these social moments. And, and I want to give us one. So we're at the end of the book of Genesis. Uh, Joseph has just been chucked into prison. Now, right, to recap, Joseph growing up, a little bit obnoxious. He bugs his brothers, you know, his brothers, perhaps also his sister. Joseph is thrown into a pit, right? He's he's sold from one foreign people to another foreign people. He finds his way, finds his way in, in a foreign land. He doesn't speak the language. He's then he's then blamed, right? He's then there's, there's a woman that's saying, you know, rape, right? It, it trouble after trouble, thing after thing. He's in prison. He's in a xenopho a country where, where xenophobia is at its very worst. He has no reason on earth to have a smile on his face. We can all agree. He's, he's supposed to be completely miserable. And then what happens next? The king's pastry chef and chief bartender are thrown into prison. 
the same nuchshleppers that put Joseph in prison. They're in prison now together. Joseph sits there and they sit there. And Joseph notices that they're upset. And he asks a question that so many of us just bypass in the miraculous story of Genesis and the Bible. And he asks, what's the matter? Do we realize the inner strength it requires for a person who's, who's gone through what Joseph has gone through to be able to give haaretz panim to, to a person, let alone a person that because of him he's in prison. And he says, what's the matter? He genuinely wants to know. Now, how do we know that this is a prerequisite to God's presence? Because after this happens, after Joseph gives haaretz panim, lights up, beams up the face, of a person he owes nothing to. We fully understand if he was just quiet and mopey, but he, no, he awakens and he says, what's the matter? He's genuinely concerned. He gives Arat Panim. From that moment on, God's response to Joseph, you had me at hello. They become, you've never had a friend like me, Allah Aladdin, and God becomes everything Joseph touches is gold from that moment because he had him at hello. The moment Joseph says to the chief pastry chef, what's the matter? This is my guy. This is my guy. This is Mashiach ben Yosef. This is the model that is going to lead to the redemption of the Jewish people. Before the supernatural Messiah of David, there will be a Messiah of Joseph, inspired by Joseph's behavior, inspired by the person who despite having no reason on earth to say what's the matter precisely because he understands the LA shore that the other person's waiting for Harat Panim. He says, what's the matter? And then God says, you're on my side. You're on my team. You're on team God for now and forever. And, and, and that's the good news. It's, it's all over the Bible. We, we, we just have to, you know, look in this sort of direction. If I had time, there is no time. I'd even get into, I think, God's final teaching to the Jewish people at the end of the book of Bamidbar, where two tribes completely, it's at the verge of mutiny. Two tribes, Gad and Ruven, come to, to Moses and say, guess what? We don't want to come into the land of Israel. We want to split. And there's this, we won't get into it, but there's this beautiful scene where God is supposedly not present, but through an understanding that only that the Jewish unity that the unity of the Jewish people is greater than the land of Israel, that God's presence is there more powerfully, more subtly, more quietly, and yet more loud than ever before. So this, this is the story. Um, we've gone through three different stations, uh, genuine friendship, social get-togethers, and then day-to-day -day interactions to try and create this paradigm shift in our minds of, of, of inviting God the next time we go out for a barbecue, a ball game, and so on and so forth. Um, happy if there are any questions. I hope you enjoyed and that we learned something. All right. Well, thank you again so much for being here. It's always a pleasure to learn with you. And um, just want to let everyone know about our next class that will be coming up uh, next on, uh, sorry, Thursday, August 3rd. Um, we will be hearing from Rabbi Barbara Simons on Do the Hebrew Prophets Speak to You? Uh, and that'll be at 1 p.m. Pacific time. So I hope that everyone can tune into that as well. Thank you again. Thank you very much. Goodbye, everyone. Thanks for joining us for this episode of the Valley Beit Midrash podcast. Remember, 
that you can join our email list at valleybaitmadrash.org to stay up to date on new programs, learning opportunities, and more ways to stay connected. If you enjoyed learning with us today, support our work by making a donation at valleybaitmadrash.org slash donate. Join us next time as we continue to work together to build a better world. Thanks for listening.